Well, friends, um, if you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Romans, chapter 12. I really do count it an enormous privilege to be with you guys today at Common Ground Church, and even more humbled by the opportunity to be with you at such a significant moment in your history. You won't know um, how precious this church has become to me. Um, before we planted Grace London, um, I came, uh, spent some time in Johannesburg, but also came and visited you guys and spent time with some of your pastors here in 2013 and began to learn something of the story of this church then that has inspired me and since then have been massively encouraged by relationships with a number of your leaders as well as um, quite a few Common Ground members and now part of Grace London as well. So um, it's the relationship is getting thicker and stronger all the time. And so I feel immensely privileged to be with you guys today. And so thank you for having me. Um, the work of God here has been an extraordinary thing. I've been learning more about that this weekend. And you have to acknowledge the Spirit's power in what only he can accomplish among you. It's been an extraordinary thing to learn more about that. Today I want to speak to you on the theme of using your gift. And uh, I, I feel uh, hum I'm bringing this humbly because I think of all the churches in the world that I know of, Common Ground is one of the churches that is doing this the best. And yet um, I also am aware of the damaging effects that we've all experienced globally over the last two years and the way that that has impacted church life. I, as a pastor, have had to wrestle with um, some of the challenges that we faced in trying to uh, bring the church back together as a family and as a body, as a community. And I want to speak into that for you today. So we're going to read the first eight verses of Romans 12, and we're going to dig in there. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father, please open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we may be changed and transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you are familiar with the letters of Paul, you'll probably know that his typical approach is to lay out the doctrines of the Christian faith, the foundations and the structures 
so that you will understand the gospel. And in the book of Romans, he does that throughout the first 11 chapters in breathtaking depth and with a magnificent, um, overarching, comprehensive understanding of what Christ is and has done for us. And then he naturally moves into a second phase in most of his letters where he begins to talk about the outworkings of the gospel in the life of Christians. And so we go from orthodoxy, which is right belief, into orthopraxy, which is right practice. And the two things are intimately bound together. Now, it's been my concern and observation as a pastor of a local church in London that throughout the last couple of years and all the trauma that we've been through as churches, our beliefs haven't changed. The foundations remain stable. Our trust in the gospel hasn't changed. But what has changed is our ability to work out our faith in practice. And so my greatest concern has been to try and speak the word of God and to re-energize our church into being the church as it's meant to be. And there's a sense in which, you know, when you, when you stop using your physical body, one of the, the impacts is that your muscles begin to atrophy. They begin to wither and weaken. And this can be detrimental to your health and your ability. And you know, if you were to ever go through major surgery, structural surgery of your body, and let's say you had to have your spine fixed or a joint replaced or something like this, you know the most urgent thing on the back of that would be to begin rehabilitation and the kind of physical therapies that would begin to strengthen the muscles and the structure of your body again so that you can gain full mobility. And I believe that that's what the church has to be focused on in the season ahead, that as we begin to experience more of normality in church life, the great urgent need of the hour is to be rehabilitated and to experience strengthening. And what I'm particularly concerned with is not just that we go through the motions of church life, but rather that every individual member of churches begins to walk and move again in the experience of serving Jesus in the way that you specifically are called to do that. Now, I want then to speak to you as individuals. How is it that the Lord sets you to work in his kingdom? And in my observation, it typically follows this pattern. The Christian faith begins with the mind and the understanding of the gospel. You understand that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead to give you new life. And as you understand that, there is an intellectual persuasion in your mind that it is true. And very quickly, when the truth begins to sink down into your life, it then begins to touch your heart. And so the reality of the gospel moves from your mind and then into your heart. There was a, um, when I was in the mid-90s, when I was in my early teens, there was a band from South Africa, 363, whose music I used to uh, listen to repeatedly. And there was one song that sort of captured what I'm trying to describe here, where the lyrics went like this. He said, look what you've done for me. Your blood has set me free. Jesus, my Lord, look what you've done for me. And then there was a response as um, the next verse said, what can I do for you, my Lord? I want you to know my heart is yours. It's not a question of what you can do for me. What can I do for you, my Lord? 
I'll quibble about some of the theology there. It's always a question of what Jesus can do for you. But there is something right in the sentiment there, isn't it? So the gospel moves from your mind into your heart, and there's a yes inside of you, a burning, passionate desire to serve the Lord. But it can't stop there. Then it has to progress to the will in which you begin to engage your, your, your life in service of Jesus. And uh, a Christian who merely stops at the mind is a dead, dry Christian. And a Christian even who stops at the mind and the heart might have all passion and no real function or usefulness within the body of Christ. You remember when Paul wrote his letter to Philemon about the Onesimus, the runaway slave who had, who had, become, who had been saved under Paul's ministry. Paul said, he's become useful to me. And that's a noble aim in the Christian life, that you are not just saved, you are saved for purpose in order to become useful within the kingdom of God. And so the question I want to ask with you from what Paul says here in Romans 12 is how how does the Lord want you to use your gift for the good of his church and for the glory of God? I want to show you a few things that seem to occur to me from this passage and what Paul says here. And the first is this, that Paul wants you to begin by soberly assessing the gift that the Lord has given to you. He invites you to begin by reflecting on yourself. He says, by the grace, verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He's inviting you to begin Self-reflection, to become more aware of who you are and the way that God has structured and made you. Now, in encouraging this, I'm, I'm quite aware in our day and age of a danger that we don't want to fall into. We live in what some people have described as the narcissistic age. And uh, particularly for the younger generation coming through with all of the kind of um, self-obsession and interest in the self and desire to express the self, as Luke was speaking of earlier, and, and the, the need to kind of put yourself on the platform. It's a performative way of living your life, presenting who you are, particularly through social media and these other things. I'm very conscious that the invitation to examine yourself is something that most people are ready to jump into. And we have all these ways of examining who am I. We have the Myers-Briggs personality test, the Enneagram. You guys, um, I've known the Strengths Finder is one of the things that Common Ground put to work. And I'm not in any way criticizing these, but we have to be conscious of the dark side of that narcissistic obsession in which I become the focus of my life. I'm interested in self-knowledge because that will help me to live a more personally satisfied life. And I can tell you there is nothing more detrimental to your sense of happiness and joy in life than the temptation to focus upon yourself and to pursue your own ends. But what Paul is talking about here is something a little different. He invites you to focus on yourself not for the purpose of becoming more interested in yourself, but for the purpose of living a life in service of Jesus. So that he, it is an act of worship. That's why the passage opened where he says, um, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What we're being encouraged to engage in here is worship, which I'll explain a little bit more later. So, when you are being invited to look at yourself, what is it 
that we need to do here. And I want you to be conscious of a danger in doing this. I think there are two great crevices that we can fall into as we begin to assess who we are and the way that the Lord has made us. On the one side is, the, is a crevice in which you can, you can stumble into an overinflated view of yourself. And this is what Paul warns against. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. One thing that... I don't mean to be critical in any way, but one thing I've learned about South Africans is that you guys back yourself. You know, British people tend to be reserved and want to sort of uh, blend into the, 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 the furniture. South Africans, not so much. You guys have, are blessed with self-confidence. But the, the dark side of that, of course, is what Paul talks about here, of having a view too high of yourself. And any one of us can be afflicted with this. I, um, some years ago, I don't know if you guys are familiar with programs like X Factor and Pop Idol and these sorts of things. So some years ago, I was, I ran, I bumped into an acquaintance of mine, an odd, odd guy on the London Underground, which is, it doesn't happen very often in a city of 10 million people. You don't often bump into people randomly, but I knew this guy and I asked him, you know, here's an odd bloke, a, a nerdy, you know, just one of these guys. And I asked him, what are you up to tonight? And he said, well, I'm off to karaoke. And there was, immediately my heart sunk. And I asked him, oh, really? So why are you doing that? And he says, because it's my passion. Everyone tells me how good I am. And uh, to my horror, a few months later, um, I was watching one of these programs. And there, lo and behold, was my friend on TV. He actually made it onto one of the YouTube uh, compilations of the worst ever auditions, you know. And that guy, no one's told him the truth. That's the tragic thing there, isn't it? The problem with having an overinflated view of yourself is that it leads to frustration. And you begin to think, why doesn't no one see how gifted and special I am? And Paul's very conscious that at the minute we begin to think about the giftings that the Lord has given you, one crevice we can fall into is having an overinflated view of ourselves. But the other one, which I think is perhaps even more urgent to address, is to have a self-negating view in which you disqualify or discount yourself from service in the kingdom for whatever reason. Perhaps because of shame that hangs over, over you from things you've done or things done to you or a sense of, of, of being small in God's eyes or within the church or insignificant or too old or too young or some other thing. When Paul writes here to have a sober judgment, he also says that each of you should, th should think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. If you are to ask me what does he mean there where he says each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, it seems to me that all through Scripture, faith is something that you must exercise. It's an active trust in the Lord. And its opposite is also fear, isn't it? You understand that in the stories of characters in, in, in Scripture... That wherever faith is lacking, people retreat into fear. One of the examples of this is Moses, when he is addressed by God in a surprising encounter with the burning bush. And the Lord tells him to go and deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses' first instinct, which shocks us because we know of him as this great man of stature who wrote the first five books of the Bible, who later delivered a million plus people from slavery and, and brought them to the very edge of the promised land. His first reaction 
was to disqualify himself and discount himself from service. And he said, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I, I identify with that instinct that he felt inside of him. When I was a child, I was painfully shy and could never really have imagined that I would be in a situation where the Lord would make me a preacher and a public speaker in this way. That was Moses' first reaction. What a tragedy if he had retreated into fear and withdrawn from the opportunity that the Lord was calling him into. A similar thing happens when the angel of the Lord finds Gideon. You know, the Israelites are languishing at the time and the Midianites are their great opponents and the mighty army they possess. And Gideon is found by an angel of the Lord hiding in a wine press. So it is a, a pit in the ground in which he is basically taking shelter and hiding from any risk to his life. And the angel of the Lord addresses him as almighty man of valor. And I think there's something of humor in that. There he is cowering in the corner, and the angel says to him, oh, mighty man of valor. But it's also a way of rebuking him and awakening him and stirring him. Don't give in to fear. Each of you should act according to the measure of faith that you've received. And I want to just gently offer a rebuke to you if you're someone who has withdrawn from the opportunity to serve the Lord in whatever way he's called you. In a sense, the great reason why this is a tragic thing is because, in a sense, you are robbing God of the glory that he is worthy of in the service that he has called you to. If I can use something of an analogy here to explain what I mean by that. You know, as Christians, we know that every rand that the Lord has given to us is his by rights. And we are merely stewards of the gifts that God has given to us and our physical possessions are his and we are just stewards on earth of it. Which is why we are compelled then to channel and steward our financial resources for the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom. He's entrusted finance to us for that end. And therefore to withhold money is, is a form of robbery, the Bible tells us. And we're robbing God of what is his and of his glory. But if that's true of your money, it's also equally true of the gifts that the Lord has put inside of you. God has structured you and created you with a unique makeup and a set of talents and gifts that you are uniquely equipped with for the purpose of serving him and to therefore withdraw from and shrink back from the opportunity to serve him, perhaps in fear or shame or some other thing, is in a sense a tragedy that a Christian must never stumble into. And this is why Paul urges us, first of all, to look at ourselves with sober judgment, to make an accurate judgment about who we, are, who we are and how God has made us so that we can then begin to serve him. And you may ask, well, how do you do that? Ask Luke later. Um, he'll give you the, the full answer. But this, my, my very brief answer is, well, it's going to be a combination of wisdom and experience and the work of the Spirit, the speaking and guiding of the Spirit. Wisdom is the Self-reflection, who am I and how has God made me? And asking others, what do you see inside of me? Experience is, is the question of what has God uniquely equipped me for through the things I've been through in life, my sufferings, my experiences, my formative years, and then 
the work of guidance is that the Spirit wants to speak in and through you. If you are someone who has, who has asked yourself, well, I just don't know what to do with my life. I don't feel a sense of purpose. I don't know how it is that God wants to put me to work. Friend, I want to urge and encourage you to get on your knees and ask the Lord until you are confident that he has spoken to you and guided you and directed you. That is your calling. You soberly assess yourself. Come to an accurate view. Now this leads me to a second observation of what Paul says here. Having, having done this, we're then called to give due honor to the gifts that we possess and the gifts that we see within other people within the body of Christ. He gives us here a theology that, give, that helps us understand how the gifts interplay. Let me just read to you verse 4 and 5 again. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. I'm beginning to feel like I'm back home in London with the sirens running past. This is great. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There are um, various pathologies or sicknesses that can afflict the church. And one of the, the, the most tragic is passivity, in which the vast majority of work and usefulness is done by a, a tiny minority within the church. And everyone else is a passive bystander. And in a sense, I know that uh, one of the, the great frustrations and difficulties that we faced throughout the last couple of years is that that has been a forced situation. So many of us have been decommissioned from action and from serving God because COVID has put a, a rest, a restrictions on the way we functioned and been able to do church life. And passivity, though, is a sickness we have to be conscious of. Another one, of course, is, is competition and rivalry. And the kind of stumbling and treading over one another in which we are wanting to outshine each other. And the worst situation of all, I think, which is a very modern sickness, is when those two things are mingled together in one church. It's particularly a sickness within the kind of celebrity culture of large, um, you know, um, celebrity-obsessed, um, glitzy church life. Where, you know, you have a very small minority of people wanting to outshine one another and a great vast body of people in total passivity and uselessness within the body of Christ. And this is so far removed from what we see in the New Testament. But what Paul talks about here is this theology that remedies this. It's a theology of the church as a body. A church that functions like a body. And how does this remedy these sicknesses. What he shows us is that just as your body is made up of many parts, so also the body of Christ functions as a, a structure made up of many parts of which you and I each are members or, or have individual roles within that body. <clears throat> when Paul describes the church as a body, he, he doesn't mean it merely as a metaphor or simile. He's not saying that the, the church is like a body. He says it is a body. When you read in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And what does this mean for you then, friend? When you wrestle with the fact that I am a part of the body of Christ, a member within the body of Christ, what does that mean for you in terms of your function and role? 
Well, it means that, let me, it means for one thing, he is different. This is what Paul said. He says that as in one body, we have many members. And he's drawing attention to the difference and the, the wonderful diversity that exists within the body of Christ. I have um, a small backyard in London and uh, with a wooden deck. Out there, summer evening, maybe it's a little cool and a little moist and a little dewy. There will be perhaps dozens of slugs crawling across the deck. I, it makes you, it makes you tread on one of the things. Good. Slug. I think one of the reasons deeply unappealing and unappealing because there are no discernible parts to them. They're just this kind of vacuole of slime and mucus. Whereas what makes the body of Christ and what makes our human body so beautiful is the distinctiveness of every individual part and the interplay of all the parts. And so he says every part is different, but he also then says every part is important. He says that as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. Now friend, you have to be conscious that the Holy Spirit as it were, is shining the spotlight on you as an individual at this point. Want to become conscious of your indispensable part within the body of Christ. When you take the human body as an analogy here, what happens if you remove your liver? You probably don't think much about the liver. But within hours, you would be dead because you'd no longer have an energy source of glucose being pumped into your blood and you would no longer be able to filter out all the toxins. And what, happens if you, what would happen if you didn't have a brain? And we only need to look at these social media influencers to know the answer. To <laughs> Part of the body is important and vital within Christ. And more than that, there is a sense in which he wants us to understand interdependence that we all have one upon the other we are all interconnected which is why we though many are one body in christ and individually members another which is to say that there is no appendage within within the church that there is no individual within the church who can simply cruise or or neglect the gift that they've been given to function within the body and to do so is a tragedy neglect of what the Lord has called you for. And I want to also underline, friends, there's no retirement from function within the body either. You die with your boots on when you're a Christian. I want you to just think about how this is true within your human body. How every part relates to each other part. Think, have you, I bet you've never really contemplated the relationship between your fingers and your eyes. They seem to have vastly different functions within the body. But they interact more common than you ever really think about. My eyes stop my fingers from getting getting stuck or being burned or damaged in some way. Also help my eyes. When I'm cycling along and one of those tiny little flies gets in your eye and you're almost blinded and about to crash on the side of the road, your fingers become essential very quickly. There is an interplay within the body. Did you know that your bones are essential for your brain's health? 
I only heard this recently and it just, I felt gobsmacked. Your bones, healthy bones, pump out osteocalcin, which is essential for the formation of memories. So when if you didn't have osteocalcin coming out, your brain wouldn't work. You think this is how, this is the wonder of how the Lord has structured the human body. And this is what Paul is saying about the church in all of its beauty and diversity. One of you, essential necessary for the functioning and the health of the body. And though you may have been decommissioned put out of action because of the experiences we've been through over recent years, friends, it is time to awaken. It means you can't be passive. It means you can't be competitive either. Instead, we honor one another. As Paul says uh, later, outdo one another in showing honor. It's the only place in Scripture that I'm aware of where we're positively encouraged towards ambition and competition is the ambition to outdo one another in showing honor. You need each other. You may have been tempted. Maybe I'll speak to some of you at home. You may have been tempted to imagine that you can function without the church. Friend, it's like having an, a, an, a limb lopped off. That thing will go gang, will, will die and, and rot within days. And this brings me back to the final thing I want to say. As we first and then give them and begin to understand their interplay within the body of Christ, the last thing, and I think the most important thing, to understand is this, that your gifts have been given to you to lead you back to worship. The whole passage, I think, is crucial for understanding a New Testament definition of what worship the Lord requires of us. Now, I, I have to underline this because I think so often we have been infected with a terrible understanding, a very... Um, narrow understanding of what worship is and what spirituality is as Christians. We've inherited a tradition and been influenced by other religions to imagine that spirituality is something very much disconnected from service, so that a spiritual person is somebody who has a kind of otherworldly gaze in their eye and, and finds refuge on mountaintops far away from, or goes off into the, into the bush far away from others, and uh, seeks intimacy with the Lord away from others. And that's true in the monastic heritage, isn't it? And it's true in our imagination of what it means to be spiritual. One of the obvious ways in which that, I think, that appears within churches is that when people come to me and they say, look, I'm just burned out from serving too much, and I'm dry spiritually, and they begin to assume that the way in which we can be reinvigorated spiritually is by laying down our service so that we can pursue spirituality, as though the two things are somehow in opposition. Now, I'm all for balance within the Christian life, but understand this, friends, worship and service are almost in, totally inseparable one from the other. This is why Paul says here at the start of the passage, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And what he means when he says present your bodies, he's saying present your service to God. And if there's any doubt, the next verse, I think, underlines that with absolute clarity. 
when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What is the will of God? In other words, what am I to do with my life as an act of worship to the Lord? I love singing with God's people. But that is only one narrow facet of what worship means as a Christian. Worship as a Christian is the entirety of your life poured out as an act of service to the Savior who loves you and has called you. And as you begin to serve him, you can experience a reinvigorating, rejuvenating power of God flowing through you. Remember, friends, you know, what is it that we crave? We want more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And yet, what does the Holy Spirit do? He anoints you with grace gifts, the charismata. He said here, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The work of the Spirit in your life is the energizing and activating of the gifts that God has given you so that the more that you put them to work, the more you experience the power of the Spirit in your life and intimacy with the Lord. And also, friend, even when you're on the edge of exhaustion, what is it that service does? It drives you back to your knees in dependence upon the Lord so that you experience deeper intimacy, deeper confidence that the Lord is with me and strengthening me and he is right here now. An inactive Christian can never know the joy of dependence. But a believer who is working for Jesus will know the, the Spirit flowing in them in extraordinary ways. I just want to wrap up by pointing to the example of Paul himself. He used, you know, he didn't just preach this stuff, he practiced it, as you know. And the way he described his pattern of life was like this. In Philippians 2, he said, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. What does he mean when he describes his life as a drink offering? Well, in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, the Israelite was called to take a, an offering of wine at certain moments in the festive calendar. Bring the wine into the temple courts and pour it out on the ground as an act of worship. I know that as Cape Tonians, a little part of you died when I described that. <laughs> pour it out onto the ground. And he said, that's my life. It looks like a waste. He was writing, when he wrote that in Philippians, he was in prison, languishing in a prison cell. His life being poured out like wine. There's one other time where he uses this image to describe his service of Jesus, and it's years later when he's in prison again in Rome, and he writes his final letter to Timothy. I find it deeply moving every time I read this letter, particularly in the final chapter as he's begin, as he's saying his goodbyes, and there's a sense of heaviness and foreboding because he knows that his time is coming when he'll be executed. Of Christ, and he again uses this picture. He says, "I'm all." being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure of the Christian life is not merely in experiencing salvation and coming into the family of God 
the joy of the Christian life is also in knowing what it is to have purpose. Because your whole life is poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. And you may think, well, I have nothing to give. You have something to give. Or you may think, I've given too much. And I ask you, how much is too much? The Lord wants to reinvigorate and rejuvenate your life and your spiritual life through service of the King and the offering of your gift. I want to urge you and encourage you. Don't go away from today and do nothing. Go away and seek the Lord. Pray and fast if you need to and ask him, Lord, what can I do for you? Let me pray and and hand back to Luke now. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being your children. But Lord, we thank you that even though we are mere kids in your kingdom, we know what it's like to work with our kids to get them to work in the kitchen and how really they're not much help at all Lord sometimes we look at ourselves and think what use am I but yet you give us the dignity of service and the joy of being a functioning part of this body and I want to pray for this congregation I ask Lord in Christ's name that as they now anticipate the next 25 years of the life of this precious church Lord the life of the spirit will be a work among them to make them the most active healthy, functioning expression of the body of Christ for the good of this valley and the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Andrew. Let's just keep our eyes closed for another second. Lord, you've spoken to us just profoundly individually this morning. that God has spoken. Do business with Jesus right now. Perhaps it's overestimating your gift. And you're overestimating yourself. And maybe you don't need the church in your thinking. Perhaps it's undervaluing your contribution. The church doesn't need me. Perhaps it's one of these pathologies of competition. Passivity. Christ, we come before you. And we, we present ourselves as living sacrifices in view of your mercy to us. Jesus, take my life. Let it be poured out unto thee. Lord, hear our hearts cries. There's something sacred about this moment, man. Christ Jesus, all that we are comes from you. It is our greatest prayer that all that we are would go back to you. 
in worship, in service, and in love, Jesus. Amen. Andrew, thank you so much. You have spoken a timely word to us. I want to encourage you, don't, don't go from this place and forget it. There's an individual nature, that, uh, an individual part of this meeting and this message that we need to hear, we need to do business with. But I want to also, as we, as we make our way from here and we make our way towards cupcakes, all you need to do to get your cupcake is fill in this uh, yellow form <laughs> and stick it on the wall. Just kidding. The cupcakes are free and for all of us. But please, let's not miss this moment, guys. This is part of us as a body putting something of what is our in our membership to contribute into this profound story. Have a fantastic Sunday. I'm landing us now because we're going to eat cupcakes and celebrate and party a little bit. But this is a message that has hopefully taken root in your heart and will challenge each of us to go back and to do business with Jesus around what it is to be part of the body. Let's, let's do business with our pink forms. And now go in, go in peace, go in love, but go understanding that the Spirit of God is in you and at work through you, not just into the world, but into the body to which He has put you and fit you in order to be a blessing in the building up of the church as you take up your role in Christ's story. Amen. Amen.